Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. Very, very excited for you all to be here today. Uh, We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Matthew today. Uh, We'll be in chapter 4. Last week we were in chapter 3. In that that chapter we encountered John the Baptist and we saw the baptism of Jesus. Uh, And back in November, so a few months ago, uh, we did a short three-week study of the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. Um, So today we are going to pick up in verse 12, sort of look at the second half of the chapter. Uh, If you're interested, you're definitely welcome to look back at those sermons on uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But today we're going to start in verse 12 of Matthew chapter uh, chapter 4. In these verses, we're going to see Jesus begin his earthly ministry. Up to this point in the book, Matthew's been very focused on Jesus' early life. He's sort of telling us who Jesus is. and uh, about the fact that he's the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. So much of Matthew 1 and 2 is Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. And that kind of is going to be a theme throughout Matthew, right? We see uh, so many Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. Chapter 3, we again saw uh, Jesus' preparation for ministry, right? John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Messiah. Jesus was baptized. Some may have thought John the Baptist was the Messiah, but he... Uh, he makes clear that he's merely setting the stage for Christ. So again, chapter 4 begins, as we recently preached, with Jesus fasting and praying and being tempted before his ministry. And there's even a lesson right there, right? Before Jesus begins his ministry, he's not reading the newest blogs or following the best Instagram influencer or taking a self-help seminar. He is fasting and praying. So let's look at chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. And the main idea here is that everyone... Everyone must repent and follow Jesus. It's a message for men, for women, for Jews, for Gentiles. Really, it's a message for those who are Christians and for those who aren't. We all must repent and follow Jesus. It's fairly straightforward, but no less profound. So let's pick up in verse 12. It says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, he being Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, or Naphtali, so that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So, Jesus begins his ministry here. We see an update on John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was arrested, and we see once again that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Again, that fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy is a big theme in Matthew. Matthew was Jewish. He was a a, a Jewish, but he was a tax collector, uh, so not always liked by fellow fellow Jews in that day because he was working for the the Roman government. Um, And his gospel, tradition tells us, was possibly written originally in the Hebrew language, actually, and then translated to the Greek, Uh, but it was written after the book of Mark. 
Most agree that it was written after the book of Mark, so you might wonder, why is it first? Well, in many ways, it's first because it sets, uh, it's such a nice bridge from the Old Testament. Because Matthew quotes so many Old Testament prophecies, he's, going, uh, he's so clear that Jesus fulfills what the Old Testament prophesied, and so it's a nice bridge to the New Testament, right? We see clearly, if, you've sort of, if you're reading straight through, you see all these promises and prophecies about who is to come, and Matthew makes so clear that all those prophecies, they're talking about Jesus. <clears throat> so, Old Testament prophecy is a big theme. Old Testament prophecy fulfillment is a big theme. God, of course, inspired all four gospel writers, and they each give complementary accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They don't contradict each other, but they do have different emphases. So get used to hearing this as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. So in verse 12, John has been arrested, which should likely dispel any notions that Jesus just started out super, super popular and his message was so well-loved, right? Well, what did John the Baptist preach in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2? He said, repent. And Jesus, if we look down just a second in verse 17, is going to say, repent. And John was arrested for this. I'll talk more about this specifically in a moment, but for now, let's recognize John the Baptist and Jesus preached the same message. Repent of your sins, and John was arrested for it. In the following verses, we see Jesus starts his ministry, and that in and of itself fulfills uh, something prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 are quoted here. And Isaiah 9 is the same chapter where we like to quote it at Christmas, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. That is also the same chapter, right? This text in Isaiah points to Jesus. But I think it's interesting, right, that it says Galilee of the Gentiles. See, the Old Testament Messiah was prophesied, and they thought he's going to come redeem the Jews, right? He's going to be uh, redeemer of Israel. But the original Isaiah uses this term, the Gentiles, right? Galilee of the Gentiles. See, if you go back to Matthew chapter 1, at the very beginning, Jesus is described as the son of David, the son of Abraham, what do Abraham and David have in common? Well, both of them are people who God made a covenant with. In David, of course, David was a king, and we see Jesus fulfilling the promises to David as a better king. And what does he covenant with Abraham? Well, that he will bless uh, all the nations of the earth through Abraham. And we see here a, a similar connection. Yes, in the Old Testament, God primarily dealt with Israel and his people, but not exclusively. And we see from the outset of Jesus' ministry that he is going to inaugurate this kingdom that's not just for the Jews, not for the nation of Israel. It will be in, it says, Galilee of the Gentiles, right? God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through the Messiah. As verse 16 tells us, those dwelling in darkness will see a great light. It's dawning, uh, Christ is dawning, uh, the light of Christ is dawning on those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. So Jesus, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, begins his ministry in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He is fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. And importantly, he's bringing the kingdom to all nations. For a first century Jew, as Matthew was, writing that might be, seem strange, but it is very significant. What Jesus calls people to do, what he calls everyone to do, is right here. He's not just calling Jews, he's calling all. So what does he call them to do? Let's look at verse 17. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
This verse is incredibly important. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus starts his ministry just like John the Baptist, calling for repentance. Repentance is changing of the heart or mind. It has this connotation right, of turning around, right? You're going one way, and you stop and begin to go the other way. You turn from sin. And if you'll forgive me a moment of sort of historical tangent, I promise it's, it's relevant and hopefully interesting here. But this verse has had a fascinating sort of reception throughout the history of the church. In many ways, the beginning of the Reformation was a dispute over this verse. See, in the late Roman Empire, shortly after this text was written, a few hundred years later, Jerome, an early church father, translated the Bible from Greek to Latin. Uh, and in his Latin translation, usually referred to as the Vulgate, it gets that name because that's where we get the idea of vulgar, like this is the common people's language. It was a language spoken by everyone. Uh, and he translated the Bible into everyone's language. Well, <clears throat> over time, that became the only accepted version of the Bible. By the time you get about a thousand years later, that's all anyone could read, even though nobody really spoke that language anymore. And in this passage, and similar passages with John the Baptist, he translated this uh, word, the Latin word is poenit, poenitentium agite, basically meaning do penance. So the church, for thousands of years, began to, over time, it happened slowly, but build a whole structure of doing penance. Well, doing penance is a little bit different from the idea of repentance. Doing penance means there's something that you need to do, some sort of action, by which you can gain forgiveness. So, throughout the Middle Ages, the church made all these little structures, all these things you could do to uh, earn uh, uh, forgiveness. One of which included buying an indulgence. So basically, you sin, you go and buy a, buy a papal indulgence, pay the Pope, and you are forgiven. It's not exactly a change of heart or mind, right? It's not exactly wanting to run from your sin. It's saying, huh, whoop, sinned again, so I can pay, and I'm clear, I'm good. So I'll, I'll skip many of, the, many of the details, but basically, in the early 16th century, in the 1500s, they translate, uh, they sort of rediscover or republish the Greek New Testament, and it, people begin to realize that's not really what this verse is saying. And Martin Luther, in his famous 95 Thesis, he begins, uh, and this is sort of what kicked off the Protestant Reformation, his first one says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said this word, repent, he meant that the whole life of the believer is one of repentance. And he goes on to say this whole sacrament of penance where you could pay the Pope, do enough good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds, that whole idea is not found in Jesus' teaching. And this is why Luther's teaching at that time, and frankly ours today, can sometimes seem paradoxical. On the one hand, it is incredibly freeing. We don't need to try to balance the scales we don't need to pay the Pope. We don't need to just hope that we've done enough penitential actions, you know, uh, uh, you know, done enough good stuff to outweigh any sins we've committed. So that's very freeing. But on the other hand, we're called to a lifestyle that's very difficult. A lifestyle of repentance. You have to stop heading in the direction of sin the way we are naturally uh, wanting to go and turn the other way. And that is very, very difficult. Repentance is both hard and hopeful. It's hard because we don't naturally do it. We need the help of God's Spirit. We're born sinners, and the idea of not sinning, of turning from our sin, grates against how we naturally act. But it's hopeful. Jesus calls us to repentance and change 
is actually possible. And if life change seems hard to you, know that Jesus is calling you and the Holy Spirit can enable such a change. Trust me, I know from experience repentance can be very, very difficult. Even if you might change some behavior, it often doesn't sort of have this idea of changing the heart or mind, right? I can manage certain behaviors, but I still can find myself wanting to sin. So we look to Jesus in the hope that he can enable this change in us, that we can truly repent and turn from our sin, and that is hopeful. Jesus' message is to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does it mean for the kingdom of heaven to be at hand? Well, I think Jesus is showing here that he's, he's starting a new ministry, right? He is, he's arrived on the scene and he's beginning the work of the kingdom in his life, death, and resurrection. That kingdom won't be fulfilled until the end of time. It won't be completed. This work isn't done until the end. But he has inaugurated this kingdom. He's saying, I'm here. The time is now. Repent of your sin because the kingdom of heaven has come. We know John the Baptist was arrested for this. And so the message of repent and turn from your sin, it wasn't just unpopular sort of at the end of Matthew, right, when Jesus is being arrested, right? This is obviously something that uh, people don't like from the beginning. It's always been and will always be uncomfortable for us to hear about our sin and our need to repent. We can and we will and we should talk about the love and mercy and grace of Jesus. Those are true and absolutely wonderful. What we see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus, uh, his encounters with people, he's merciful and gracious towards the repentant, towards those who recognize the depths of their sin and humbly turn and look to Jesus. Why, you might ask, and as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, you might ask, why does Jesus seem so much more merciful and gracious to prostitutes and tax collectors than to the Pharisees? Both are sinners. Both have been, uh, but both are, are sinning against God, but we see in the Pharisees a self-righteousness, a refusal to look and see their own sin. There's a, there's a story later in the Gospels in which uh, Jesus tells the story of a tax collector and a Pharisee, and the tax collector is beating his chest, looking to heaven, saying, Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And the Pharisee says, well, thank goodness I'm not like him. Ha, huh, I'm pretty good. Jesus says, well, the one showed a heart of repentance and the other one of self-righteousness. See, everyone is a sinner, but our pride, our self-righteousness can be a block to repentance. Repentance requires humility. So how did the religious and political leaders, those who thought they were strong and powerful, those who thought that they were righteous, how did they respond to John the Baptist telling them to repent? Did they humble themselves? No, rather than repent, they arrested John the Baptist, and as we'll see later, he was actually killed. And as we saw a few weeks ago at Easter, Jesus faced the same fate. Those who are set in their sinful ways do not want to hear this message. Repentance requires us to humble ourselves, to admit our sin, and to turn from it. Ultimately, as I'll explore at the end of the sermon today, it can't be done in your flesh. We need the Spirit of God, and we need His help. So today, repent. Turn to God. Call out to Him, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want to move on to the rest of, our rest of our text today. And as we read these verses, I want you to be thinking about this question. How did the first disciples respond when Jesus called them? What was their initial response? So verse 18 to the end of the chapter, it says this. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So we see that they follow Jesus. He calls them to follow him immediately. So Jesus now, again, he calls his first disciples. He begins his ministry. And we're going to look first at these first few verses of him calling the first disciples. And then I'll just share a few brief comments on verses 23 through 25. In many ways, verses 23 through 25 serve as kind of a, a foreshadowing of what the rest of the book is about. Most commentators I read this week, they, they sort of split the book of Matthew into three sections. There's chapter, there's 1, 1 through 4, 16, which is Jesus' early life, his preparation. Then there's here in 4, 17, which the verse begins, from that time Jesus began to, and then we see his ministry through uh, chapter 16. And then in 1621, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So we see early life up to middle of chapter 4. Then we see his ministry through chapter 16. And then we see sort of him taking his disciples to Jerusalem with the purpose being he's going to die and rise again. So in these verses here, 23 through 25, they're mostly just a, a foreshadowing, a thesis statement of here's what Jesus' ministry is going to look like from chapter 5 through chapter 16. He's going to preach, he's going to teach, you have the Sermon on the Mount, we have many, many healings, um, and so we're going to study those in more depth in coming weeks. So let's look at verse 18, 18 and 19. <clears throat> Jesus walks by the sea and sees Peter and Andrew, and he calls them. Now, this would have been very different in that time, right? In that time, you have uh, rabbis or philosophers and their, uh, their schools, and students come to them and say, I want to study with you. I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. They have a, there's a good teacher, and they say, I'm going to come, and I'm going to follow you. Here we see it reversed, right? Jesus goes out, and he finds them, and he calls them to follow. He seeks them out. And what does he say that they're going to do? Well, they were fishermen. They were fishing, and he says, I will make you fishers of men. What does that mean? Just as they would gather fish, now they're going to go out and gather people. It's not like, you know, sort of, we just think of, like, chilling on a boat with a fishing pole, right? This was their job. This was very important for them. And they would have nets and try to get as many fish as possible, right? They would be going out, proclaiming good news, and gathering people into this kingdom that was at hand. And how do they respond? Well, verse 20 says they responded immediately. Verse 21 tells the same story of the two sons of Zebedee. Jesus called them to follow, and how did they respond? They responded immediately. In both stories were told, they dropped everything and followed immediately. Well, why would they do that? Why would they do that for this teacher? 
Well, there's a few things. For starters, I think uh, it bears mentioning that earlier in this chapter, right, we, we, we sort of skipped some of it today, but we see Jesus facing this temptation. Um, and there's a clear parallel in that temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden. Jesus is being tempted by Satan. They were tempted. And where Adam and Eve fell, Jesus stood. Throughout these first few chapters, we get this picture of Jesus as the Messiah, as the chosen one. And so this is someone worth dropping everything for. This one, the Messiah, deserves our obedience and discipleship, and the disciples want to learn and grow and follow their leader. That's what a disciple did. They wanted to learn from this person, grow from them, follow their leadership. And I hate that this is like always my, uh, my um, illustration, but our older children, it's always about the kids, right? At their age, they, they know how to obey and disobey. They, they've clearly, at least our older two, they know what they're doing. And, it's kind of scary, but they're learning our tendencies. So they're working hard to know how and when they can get away with things, sometimes even working together. And they sometimes think, I, I can see their, their brains working. They think like, okay, that threat from dad was half-hearted. He's not going to follow through. Or, uh, they're looking pretty tired, so uh, they're distracted. Um, you know, okay, they're counting to three, but there could be an infinite amount of space between two and three. They could just keep saying, I'm on two, I'm on two, mm, are you going to obey, right? So we've started, and I think, I think we got it from like, I don't know, some friend or something. Uh, this, this little phrase that we're trying to teach them, we say, obedience means obeying right away, all the way, and with a joyful heart. They can recite that. Can they live it? That's another story. <laughs> Lord willing, in time. But right away, all the way, and with a joyful heart. And I was thinking about that as I read these verses, right? It's the same way with Jesus. Delaying obedience is really just disobeying. Partial obedience is not really obedience. Obeying with an angry or hard-hearted attitude is not being a disciple of Jesus. Saying, yeah, but I don't, I don't know about that. It's not discipleship. Thinking, how can I do this on my own terms? So, okay, I'll give Jesus Sundays, maybe the third Friday of every month, but rest is me time, isn't following Jesus. Following Jesus means right away, all the way, and with a joyful heart. The disciples didn't wait, they didn't question, they didn't hedge their bets, see if this guy was really someone, ooh, you know, he's, he's, he's questionable. No, they followed immediately. <clears throat> uh, through the Gospels, we'll see the cost of following Jesus. Sometimes that meant leaving family and comforts. We see right here uh, that um, uh, the sons of Zebedee left their, bother, left their father in the boat, right? They immediately left, and they left him in the boat to follow Jesus. Sometimes this means selling possessions and giving to the poor. Sometimes it means moving to a faraway place. Sometimes it means risking your reputation in order to share the gospel with someone. Ultimately, following Jesus can be hard, but it's worth it. Again, they left their father in the boat. And we have no reason to believe that they didn't love their father or care for their father. But the one calling them was greater even than their biological father. They followed Jesus immediately. Again, we see in these final verses that Jesus' ministry involved teaching, preaching, healing. He drew crowds, which is understandable, right? He did often have to rebuke the crowds, but he... Jew crowds. In the life of ministry of Jesus, we see that people will flock to someone who heals diseases, who 
who helps the sick and needy, who rebukes the Pharisees. But they don't so much like the idea of repentance. When, they're, when people are called to repent or told, hey, this is going to be a hard road to follow Jesus, that's when the crowds usually shrink a little bit. This one we're called to, he can heal the sick, he can raise the dead, he can bring joy and peace and healing. But he's also the one who calls us to repent of our sins. Healing can begin when we admit that there is a sickness. Again, repent and follow, repent of sin and follow Jesus. It's the simple message from our text today. In the Gospel of Luke, we get a parallel passage to the calling of the disciples. Like many texts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they often tell the same story, again, sort of complementary stories that don't uh, contradict one another that tell about the life of Jesus. And what you would see if you read the story of Luke is that he adds certain details that Matthew leaves out and vice versa. So that leads me to ask this question. Why did, G or sorry, why did Matthew, or really the Holy Spirit through Matthew, give us no real details about the fisherman's background or context? In John chapter 1, John tells us that Andrew, one of the disciples called here, was a follower of John the Baptist. So he might have been familiar with Jesus through his following of John the Baptist. That passage I just mentioned in Luke, Luke tells us that right before Jesus called them, he performed a miracle, helping them get more fish. So why doesn't Matthew share those? What is Matthew trying to emphasize in his, uh, his account here? And I think it's to say, as we've said a few times, that Jesus' call to follow him is universal. Here's what I mean. You and I are like Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your context is. You and I, in whatever background, in whatever context, wherever we've been, whatever we might be thinking, we are all called to follow Jesus. Ultimately, the circumstances are always going to be different for everyone. The call to follow Jesus is universal. In not giving us any context or background to their lives, aside from maybe their occupation, Matthew's demonstrating that everyone, all people, you and me, our children, our parents, our friends, all are called to follow Jesus. Regardless of whether you're John the Baptist, whether you saw John, uh, Jesus perform a miracle, whether you were living in 16th century Germany, 21st century Montreal, the call is the same. Follow Jesus. There's no context or background that can excuse you from that call. Well, I'm not a fisherman. I didn't see a miracle. Well, <clears throat> uh, such notions are just human excuses. Jesus' call is to repent and to follow him. And these are non-negotiable universal truths that require our immediate action. So today, that's the call. Repent and follow Jesus. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, I encourage you to do so. Trust that Jesus Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, can save you from your sin. Through faith, you can trust in him, and you can be enabled to repent of your sin. To do that 180 by the help of God. Follow him. The cost might be high. might be difficult. But I would warn you that the cost of not following him is higher. It's an eternal cost that will be much more than anything we face on earth. And church, I would just read again Martin Luther's first thesis. In his 95 Theses, it says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. And I think he's correct. A life of repentance doesn't stop the moment you become a Christian. It 
begins then. By God's grace, the Holy Spirit is always opening our hearts to see our sin and to, to, to reveal it to us that we might repent and come closer to Jesus. So today, the call for everyone is to repent and follow Jesus. It's a hard call, but it's a hopeful call. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl.gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.